Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother is bleeding. At least I have a husband, you know. Does anybody here believe that? We are from Arkansas, no. <laughs> it's 2024. Weird. We're back with our first official episode. Mm-hmm. If you listen to the last one, it's unofficial, but this is official. Yeah. So I have some orders of business, and the first order of business actually pertains to the name of this episode. Okay. So, taking a short break from the baby name ballot mm-hmm. for the naming of the episodes and getting back to Duggar grandkids. Okay. So, this is the George episode. Okay. George. Because uh, while we were away, Jessa had blessing number five. Oh, okay. So, um, George Augustine. Mm. So, little, new. A little bit better, just a little bit, than Spurgeon. <laughs> and then Henry was fine, but then he was Henry Wilberforce. <laughs> so, um, can you hear that? Yep. Mildred is not being a very good producer and uh, batting around our bingo pieces. I have a little ramekin of the pickle chips you and can hear it. the tater tots. And she is going to town. You done now? Yeah, right. She's just in her producer du- duties. That's hard to say. Uh, she was just making sure the pieces were uh, ready to go. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mildred. We appreciate yep. we appreciate appreciate your diligence. Your <laughs> diligence. Diligence. Okay, so that was like the first order of business. A okay. couple more. You know, George. while we we're away, there was Duggar. You know, Duggar news. Ooh. The second, if you remember, Josh has now attempted twice for an appeal. Okay. Shot down twice. Mm-hmm. He's trying again. Surprise, surprise. This time, um, surprise, surprise. <laughs> that surprise, was, surprise. That was stuck in our heads all December. So this time, they're petitioning the Supreme Court. Okay, because it hasn't worked at any of the other levels, so they just keep going over, yep. okay? Out of all the things that they fucking hear, you think they're going to fucking hear this? Yeah, Like, exactly. are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> but specifically, it was filed to Brett Kavanaugh. Funny, right? Oh, my. Um, five days before Christmas, and the petition stated that Mr. Duggar's case raises an important question concerning a criminal defendant's constitutional right to present a complete defense, arguing that his case was not, quote, granted the time necessary to adequately prepare the petition. Wow. So. I'm not sure if it was a time thing when you're trying to defend having CSAM on a 
work computer. Yeah. I don't know how much longer they needed to come up with an appropriate defense for that because I don't feel like there's a fucking defense for that. Yep. So that's that. I don't imagine that will get anywhere, but oh just reporting the news. Second order of business is a... Uh, I was going to say, I don't watch the news. I don't watch the news. <laughs> um, Jill, Jilly Croissant, mm. was spotted at the big house. And I don't mean visiting Josh in prison. Merp, she did it. I, I mean... First uh, merp of the year. There you go. <laughs> um, I mean the Tater Top Mansion, of course. She was spotted in footage from the Christmas gathering, mm-hmm. Her, both her and Derek, yeah. our, our messy bitch. Wild. Um, but what I want to talk about more than that was some of people's reactions to that that I thought were fucking wild. Okay. Some crazy takes, in my opinion. Okay. Hot takes. Like people saying that, like, this just looks bad to go run, to write a book and then go running back to your abuser. And then, um, so then people jumping on that and being like, I was going to buy her book and now I'm not. And I'm like, were you really going to buy it? That's like, okay. Th- that's like you talking about a restaurant. People be like, I'm never eating here again. It's like, yeah, great. Exactly. We don't want you to. Mm-hmm. Um, were you really going to buy it? Or then other people being like, I read her book and I supported her and I cannot support her anymore. <laughs> I think that's a fucking wild ass take. Yeah. Especially when at the end of the book exactly it was exactly the next thing i was gonna say go ahead no sorry i just got excited because that was exactly what i was gonna say like it was (laughs) it was the end of the book when she talked about um lego coming over and holding their new son right yes yeah so it's like even at the end of this book that was saying all of these things that happened and recounting her tale and explaining why they were bad and why they were destructive and why she was doing this to kind of heal from all those things it showed there are my parents and these are the inroads that i've taken for now because she talked about like calling michelle whenever they needed you know like child care kind of like help and so it's i think she's been crystal clear from Mm -hmm. the fucking get-go from the book and also in subsequent interviews that she wants a repaired relationship, but she's doing that with boundaries in place. Yeah. And that a, was a huge and, part and, of the end. And putting herself in position where she's like, I'm not going to let you do this to me anymore. Of course. So I don't know why this is a fucking shock. It's not shocking. And I also feel like it comes from a place of like, do you really not know what it's like to, for, to understand where Jill, even with her even with going on with her father to not want to be around her fucking siblings for Christmas. Maybe like I've been in a position where I've not been a great place with other people and I'm around them because I want to be around the same people that we both love Mm -hmm. getting emotional. But I'm just like, what a, what a fucking place to like really not understand where someone's like, they still love their fucking family. Yeah. And it, it doesn't even have to be about Jim Bob. It could be like, you know what? I haven't seen my fucking siblings on Christmas in years. Yep. And if now I can, I'm going to fucking do it. Fuck yeah. you for judging that. Mm-hmm. I think that's bullshit. Plus, the biggest part of that book was her overcoming Lego's control over her and her life. And in, you know, in smaller aspects, the the religion and Bill Gothard. And it was all about her kind of breaking out of these systems of control and then 
reevaluating those relationships, like you said, with boundaries that she is okay with. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's really nearsighted for people to number one be saying like, "Well, this doesn't look good that she's here," and then, like you said, lacking the empathy to be to understand what's actually going on. Yeah. And I feel like it's in a system like this because you have a chunk of people that think she did this for money. I think that's I think that's what a lot of people are getting at. Like and then they're looking book. for any reason they can to discount what she does or what she says because then they can be like, see, see. But they're they're going into it with that mindset. Absolutely. So they're going to be looking for anything. And a couple other things. Um, I bet it probably felt good for Jill to show back up. Mm-hmm. It probably did. And I bet our messy bitch probably fucking loved every second of it too. Yep. It was probably awkward, but there's probably part of them where they're like this we kind of taken back our power, like in a way. Mm-hmm. They won the breakup. <laughs> right. That's what it feels like. It yeah. feels like they won the breakup. You know? And also I can sort of this is pure projection and you know, on speculation I mean, um speculation, that was the correct word. Mm-hmm. On my end. But I feel like Jim Bob's probably feeling a little bit of the pressure. Now this book is out there and he was probably pissed for a really long time, but then now it's like, well, I'll let her come back around a little bit. Number one, from a public perspective, but I mm-hmm. also think that he knows that like it's going to get around to his kids. Yeah. Some of them have, ar- have already read it. Mm-hmm. At some point, whether now or in the future, it's going to make its way to his younger kids. Yeah. And I think it's starting to be like a semi-damage control over like, I'm not going to be so obviously ostracizing her anymore because now it's just making me look bad because she's put her story out. Yep. So I think it's a tiny little way of him to be like, oh, a little bit of damage control. Yeah. Because you can't read that book and be like, well, there's two sides to every story. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's not right. that's not the style of conflict that she was recounting in this. So I think it's easier for the kids to look back at this time period and see what was going on through Jill's perspective and her putting it out in this book and then look at their dad and be like are you serious like be mad over the fact of like what were you doing at that point yeah so So i just wanted to share that because i thought that that was some wild ass takes Mm -hmm. and i did go back and check back up on it and one particular content creator that was really posting this is like this looks bad and i was reading all of the comments Comments are all gone now, so they have limit. You know, they've made those go away. So I'm like, oh, was that looking a little? I don't know, but yeah, just you got dog piled on over your dumb well, no, opinion. A lot of, uh, I will no. I'm gonna say the the um, the majority of the comments when I initially looked were in agreement. Oh god! So that's why I was saying that these comments were fucking wild, and then now they're gone. So I don't know if after a point it started to shift, and then mm. people were like, y'all are fucking crazy. Yeah. But um, I hope so. Yeah. So, anyways, I just wanted to share that. Okay. Um. For the record, we are still fucking sick. So I apologize <laughs> if, if you we can't still, tell. if we still, if, if we've barely been going, we've already had to stop a couple times for coughs and nose blows. And so we're, we're trucking through, but um, just so everybody's aware. To shuffle that, to dig out that hot content, we're oh, yeah. muscling it through. I do. I don't know if has it been too much time. I do have a Mildred minute, but it may have been. Let's let's do the Mildred minute. Okay. The first Mildred minute of twenty twenty four. Millie says, Okay, you have sixty seconds. Okay, so if you listen to our Christmas pickle peak, we talked about how she's been a little naughty 
Yeah. And we think that Santa Paws was really busy and unable <laughs> to update the naughty and nice list. So she yep. she got away with it. Agree. But I have one particular naughty story I want to share. So suddenly she's a counter surfer. Never was. Mm-mm. We went through that with Momo too, where Momo never did. And then one day, I'm like, in your guys' older age, you just suddenly go, oh, counters. Like, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Like just one day. But the thing about Momo, she got up on them, but you could like trust. She wasn't up there all the time and you could like fucking trust her. She didn't do anything. She wasn't like knocking shit over. She would mostly walk around and sniff stuff. I I would. I got home one time and I have this picture of her just like sit. She had a Christmas scarf. It was Christmas time. (laughs) She was just neatly sitting amongst like my Christmas like kitchen Santas and nutcrackers. And I was just like, (laughs) so she just got up there, but she's like, I'm just going to sit here. She wasn't doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. Mildred, she's a fucking shit. Like Lunatic. Yeah, she is. So... Like, I can't leave anything on the counter anymore. I can't, like, nothing. And we've actually been putting, like, pans upside down. Like, Cookie, yeah, like cookie sheets. On the and... counters to try to deter her so that when she has jumped up, like, it scares the shit out of her. And, and she then jumps she jumps away. off, yeah. But Tim and I had... so Okay, so Tim had brought home food for me from his job. Mm-hmm. So it was, like, in a big... A big oversized paper bag. Paper, like, to-go bag with, like, the big hoop handle. You know what I mean? So we'd eaten like with that and like whatever. And a lot of times when we get those, we'll put all of our garbage in that and then just take that directly outside instead of Mm -hmm. putting it, you know, like in our regular garbage. Yeah. So we had cleaned the counters and um, moved that bag over like sitting on top of our garbage because our garbage is like where you have to put the foot Mm -hmm. thing to flip the thing. So it's flat. So it was like in line with the counter. So I, because I was sick, like this was when I was like really sick so like we'd gotten done eating i went and i laid down and tim's like i'm gonna clean up like whatever and i specifically said i am going to the bathroom and then i am going to take this trash out tim goes to the bathroom and while he's in the bathroom all of a sudden i hear like (laughs) i mean just like absolute fucking pandemonium like absolute chaos and i even laid there and like completely still for a minute and i was like this is not good i know it's not good yep and i come out and drug all through the dining room kitchen and then partially into the carpet of the front living room is that bag of trash food and shit everywhere because he'd also used it to like clean up around the kitchen and stuff yep so there was napkins and coffee grounds and I had made stir fries, so there was like some vegetable stuff. There was like ramen, some old ramen packets that we couldn't use that I had like thrown in there. All sorts of stuff. This is all over the floors, all over the carpets, and the bag is ripped open and like spilling out onto the carpet. And I'm all, where is she? Like I was like so mad, but I'm like, where the fuck is she? So I look over and she's hiding on our couch in the rumpus room, like crouched. What had happened is she put her head through the loop of the handle, the handle. and when it got stuck. So that freaked her out and she ran. So she's running around she dra- dragging the bag around her. And then eventually through the fucking chaos, the bag ripped off, but then the loop was still around her. <laughs> so she's laying there on the couch, breathing, crouched, all, heavy. breathing all heavy with like this loop around her and this i don't want anybody to, i don't want anybody to freak out it wasn't tight around her it was or gigantic anything. it was yeah. gigantic but, but because she freaked her. out yeah it was around her shoulders a bit. so i was like oh my god you little like like i was like you little shit and so then we're like 
quickly trying to clean this up and get it off the carpet and everything. And then I go looking for her later. And then now she's on the back of the couch and like in the back corner. Hiding behind the cushion. Like we have our cushions are a little bit tall compared to the the back of that uh, couch. And she was sitting on the back of the couch because she could hide behind the cushion. Still. And I do want to point out when I was in the bathroom, I heard a noise. So I heard the noise of her freaking out. And then in my head, I was like, I hope Whitney's just taking it out. And as I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of the bathroom and go see what happened. Whitney walks by and just goes, "You'll something like you'll never guess what your daughter did. Yep. Sounds yep. about right. So, yeah. Hiding behind the so cushions. So she was hiding. So then I went the and handle removed, in her shoulders. I, I removed the handle and I was like, you're such a shit. But at the same time, it was so cute. And here's the problem with cats. Little shit and adorable. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do with that combination? You know? <laughs> So that is that's our Mildred minute, that's our Mildred minute. And I just want to point out that I'm going to post this picture in our stories. As I'm telling this story, she is asleep on Tim's knee with her chin resting on the tray with his notes. And you're going to see a roll of toilet paper in the picture. But that's what we used to blow our nose because does anybody our age buy tissues? We don't. I've never bought Kleenex I, in my life I except think- for like in an airport. I bought a pack. I think I grew up with my mom has major like nose issues and like Mm -hmm. allergy issues. Always had Kleenex, always had tissues. And then I became an adult and I don't, I think I bought two boxes in my adult adult life. I've never bought a box of of So when you see toilet paper in this picture, it is not because we're wiping our ass while we record. We're wiping our noses. Look at this little child. Oh my God, Mildred. All right. Well, shall we begin? (sighs) <sighs> yep. So that was your Mildred Minute. So the episode we're recapping today is called Duggar's Moving Out. And it premiered February 6th, February 16th of 2010. Okay. The episode opens up with Lego and Cannon in the NICU standing over baby Josie as Lego mm. explains how up and down it's been with her. She'll be fine for a few days. And then suddenly she'll be in critical condition again. Mm-hmm. Which the stress of that has to be like so fucking awful. Like health ups and downs are so hard anyway with just that constant waiting for the other shoe to drop and something to go wrong. Like so fucking stressful. So then it flashes over to an empty tater top mansion, which is kind of an odd sight. Mm -hmm. Still decorated for Christmas with garlands and bows, but no mattresses on the beds. They wanted the whole family to be together. So they packed up some of the essentials to camp out, as they call it. Mm-hmm. Next scene, the kids are gathered around outside the historic Cornish house in Little Rock, where the family is going to be staying for the foreseeable future. Lego Hare reads from the plaque outside the home and explains to them that Hilda Cornish was a leader in advocating birth control and, quote, she'd probably roll over in her grave if she knew we were here and laughs. This is uh, also going into uh, the, during this, there's like a voiceover kind of interspersed with these with Jill. Um, and they're talking about the house and it's when they show those scenes, they put an echo, um, like kind of filter on her talking, I think to kind of make it, because they're showing scenes of this empty house. And as she's talking about it, like you hear this echo on her voice. So I just thought that was interesting, like, 
production where they were like, hey, we want to make value. Yeah, we want to make sure they didn't have money for Echo uh, Echo filters last season. They sure did not. Yeah. So the house is only a mile and a half from the hospital. So that's why they chose it. Mm -hmm. And it's nearly 100 years old at the time. Um, 91 to be uh, specific. Mm-hmm. I looked it up. So there's clips of some of the ornate details of the house that are, they're really cool. And there's a funny part where one of the carvings up near the top of the ceiling, I don't know what you like call those kind of mm-hmm. like at the ends of the beams type thing. I don't yeah. know. But, um, kind of looks like Soundman Jim <laughs> mm-hmm. with his signature mustache. Push broom mustache. Yeah. So they've somebody has put headphones over it, and then Jim says, <laughs> "That is one fine-looking gargoyle." It's such a good one. I would totally make that joke. Oh yeah, you would. That's the equivalent of the stud finder. Come on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is. Yeah. I mean, if you grab the stud finder to use and you don't put it on yourself and say "found it," like, are you are you a human male? Because I don't think you. I don't are. think so. I don't think so. So they're unpacking the moving truck and it's just kind of interesting to to see what was made like deemed an essential, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the harp made the cut. Yes, it did. I don't mean to keep harping on it. Or she did it. But the harp has been getting a lot of tension, you know, these days, so I just felt the need to point that out. Was that a like a tight string joke? Cuz that's what it came out as. Pretty good. A lot of tension. Yep. Remember how um, the episode where they get it coincided with us reading about it in Jill's book in the breakdown, mm-hmm. and then suddenly it, it appeared in Jill's stories the morning that we released that episode. Yep. So it's just been like a whole thing. Mm-hmm. But the harp saga continues because Jill and Derek actually listed it for sale on mm-hmm. Facebook Marketplace a few weeks back for ten thousand nine hundred ninety-five. Yeah. Any whoozle. So that's just an update on the harp. But, <laughs> that's um, our our harp minute yeah but the harp made the cut and they're you know they're as they're setting up the house so that uh, that was our new segment what we're harping on it's where you go to get all your hot harp news <laughs> man i hope that there's more going forward otherwise i think the segment may have ended today it started yeah. and ended a one and today. done rest in peace if we had a video podcast i imagine it would be like a splash logo of of that segment what what are we harping on and then it'll be like 2024 to 2024 and it'll be sarah mclaughlin music in the back that'll be like the in memoriam i will remember you but it has to be in like harp (laughs) you know so then we get a Jana speak square i believe this is the first ever correct yep I mean, they haven't let her talk until now, so... Yeah. So, Jana speaks as she shows off the kitchen in this house, Mm -hmm. which, of course, is much smaller because it's just an average kitchen. So, they have one fridge and two small freezers, which I think they they brought the freezers. And I actually think one of them is, like, devoted to breast milk, but that's a whole other thing. Um, And then, you know, just your run-of-the-mill stove. So, kitchen-wise... They're taking it back to the Johnson Road house days for sure, yeah. you know, taking it yep. back. So while the house is large, it's definitely not set up like the Tater Tot Mansion. It has many smaller rooms rather mm. than the fewer in number, but gigantic ones that they're used to. It has four bathrooms, but only one working shower and one working tub. Jill says, quote, 
I was in the shower and my dad informed me that there was another shower downstairs that wasn't where it was supposed to be. Um, so there was like a growing puddle of water. <laughs> Which they never really talked about it after that. I was a little confused. So she was showering and it was um, leaking downstairs. Just draining into the house. Yep. And tell me what you think, but I'm proposing an Our Girl Johanna Square. Okay. There's a couple moments. Do you not have this one? Oh, okay. Um, Because when Lego is explaining the bathroom situation, he's crouched down and telling this to Hanny. It's like, here's who who can he talk to? Who can he he tell this to? Um, And then, you know, goes to Jill telling the shower story and then back to Lego hair saying, but other than that, it's a great house. But Hanny is like messing with her hair and making a face like she she looks like she's like why does this man insist on talking to me (laughs) it's funny because she's like oh yeah okay whatever like you can go now like she's like kind of like rolls her eyes at one like yeah it's it's funny so which i'm assuming is a little normal for anybody around lego when he's on tv but our girl she knows what she knows so Jill is taking charge again, I guess, and she's the one giving the camera crew the house tour. Yep. The top floor of the house is the ballroom, so it's just a big open space. They have a ping pong table set up, and it looks like it's going to be a good place for the kids to play. Correct. Of course, the kids are still divided up, so there's a boys' room and a girls' room, and they're sleeping two to a mattress. Mm-hmm. Although currently, John, David, and Joseph are staying back at Legoland, and Joe says... It's really weird to be at the house with only me and John. It's like really quiet there. (laughs) And it probably is weird as fuck, but can you imagine the sense of freedom they must have felt? Yeah. It's just because it's them too. Like, it's not like it's them too and a camera crew or like they're kind of just there. Freedom no Duggar girl would ever be able to experience. No, not at all. Like they like, wouldn't like if a girl was staying back at the house, they'd leave all the little kids with them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. Like this idea that there's just two bros hanging out yeah. would never happen. They wouldn't just be like, no. you know what, Ginger Jessa, you stay back. It would yeah, exactly. never happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so back at the Cornish house tour, they have one room for all the computers to do their schoolwork. Mm-hmm. A music room. And a room that they made into the family closet. Yep. The laundry room, of course, is average, so it's just one washer and dryer. So they have to be, like, constantly washing and drying to be able to keep up. But have no fear. Grandma Duggar is here. here. They couldn't leave their fluff and fold lady behind. I was going to say, I felt so bad when they were talking about this. It's like... Because it was her with, like, yellow, like, dishwashing gloves, like, cleaning the floor, polishing the floor or something. Yeah. And I'm like, they brought this woman to, like, scrub a historic house? Well, she's got, like, round-the-clock, like, tidy ivories to keep up with. So they're like, we cannot leave Grandma behind. Especially now with only one dish, with only washer. Right. You know? And, um, like you were talking about with the floor, it looks like she's bending down. Like you said, she's got the yellow gloves. And it looks like she's kind of, like, buffing the wood floor almost. Mm-hmm. I think they probably, like, I think she was working on a scratch that they gave it or something like that. Probably, yeah. Like, I was, I would be dying having all these fucking kids running around a historic property, scuffing the shit out of history, <laughs> like, left and right. Like, I would be so stressed because I'm big into history and preservation. So, maybe grandma is on my level and she's trying to preserve, like, the history. 
like history from the Duggar litter like as much as possible. <laughs> I'm I, maybe she's on my level. I'm not sure. But while we're on the subject of floors, I did actually catch several glimpses of the bottoms of their feet this episode. Mm-hmm. They were passably clean. Wow. Did you notice? I I only noticed once and I didn't see a whole lot, but I was like, okay, it's probably just early in their time there. Passably clean, which wow. is funny because these 100-year-old, nearly 100-year-old wood floors are less dirty than the like six-year-old tater tot <laughs> mansion floors. Yeah. Um, Can but, I interject with something that we never talked about? About dirty feet? Oh, yeah. So Whitney and I were watching... One of the jokes about Die Hard is that oh. as the movie goes on, his his tank top gets dirtier until he loses it, right? And the same thing when he was climbing... When he stops the elevator and he climbs out, we looked at his feet. We, we were, we were like, watching his feet the entire movie. <laughs> the entire movie. And we're not feet people. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> like, that's just not our thing. But... It was yeah. I remember her looking at it and her being like, "His feet are super clean." So he, we went back and around we, like a floor that was a construction under construction. Site. And I was like, "How did he walk around a construction site and his feet are that clean?" <laughs> so like then from there we kept watching and I was like, "Too clean, too clean." Then noticeably dirty as soon as he gets out of the vent. Yep. And then it was like soon after that is where he ha- he walks on the glass during the big confrontation. So that's a different story. Yeah. But yeah, we were we remarked in the fact that through a lot of that movie remarkably clean they were they were (laughs) so just kind of irony that you know there was bruce walking through a (laughs) through a construction site clean feet this 100 year old house pretty clean pretty clean feet dugger that floors, man no but you know they'll take care of it in due time they'll really grind some grime into into the floors in the next three months i'm sure so i believe it yeah i don't think it'll take long yep and then Baby Cannon says one of my least favorite of their little jokes. She says, I am the Dairy Queen. <laughs> Way to fucking ruin blizzards, you know? I I don't want a peanut buster far, parfait at all. I, I love a blizzard, but now I'm like, ah, damn it. <laughs> but Michelle is continuing uh... to pump and store milk for Josie, even though she's unable to use it right now. And this is when we get a little more detail on her condition. So if you remember, Josie had been born at um, UAMS after Michelle had been air there from Rogers. She was at UMAS for seven days originally, and she was initially handling breast milk via like two via, like mm-hmm. tube feed. Yeah. Okay. But then her lower intestine perforated and she had, oh, she had such a poor little distended belly. Yeah. So they transferred her to Arkansas Children's Hospital and she seems to be doing better now as they wait to reintroduce breast milk again. Yeah. She continues to have ups and downs with her blood pressure and heart rate, and every day is different. So, Lego and Cannon are headed out to go visit Josie, and as Cannon comes down the stairs, he tells her she looks great and gives her a tight-lipped kiss. Tight-lipped kiss, yeah. Square. It's the gift that no one ever wants. And then he once again says the type of thing we've heard him say before. Ugh. You don't look like you've just had your 19th child. Amazing. I have a couple things to say about this. Oh, my God. First of all, Cannon just kind of grimace laughs and kind of like widens her eyes a tiny bit and barely musters up a faint. Aw. Yep. 
I think even she is over it. <laughs> it's like, okay, we get it. Get some new material. But also, like, there's a lot going on. And I know when something so serious is happening in life, like, I don't know, like, the, the fucking, the actual life of your very fragile child being on, like, a fucking pendulum at all times. I wouldn't have the capacity or the patience for, like, those little fucking stupid quips. It's like, mm-hmm. I, f- shut the fuck up. I don't have it in me to to placate you right now. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, so it would enrage me personally. Enrage mm-hmm. me, but on her it comes out as, aw. Like, and like, huh, aw. Can't you make know? him feel bad. Yep. Um, But my second thing is, I want to know what he means when he says that. Does he mean, like, you don't look fat? You don't look old enough? You don't look like you have a prolapse at all? Like, oh my God. like what do you think he... What does which, he, which avenue you know? he was going down? Like, what would Jim Bob Duggar define as not looking like you've had 19 kids? You know? I'd like mm. to know. I don't think it's that deep. It's not, but I'm just saying. <laughs> it's not that deep. Yeah. So at the hospital, Josie is now 27 days old and has actually gained seven ounces, which is great. Mm-hmm. So she now weighs in at a pound 13 ounces. And this episode, I feel, is the first time we see Michelle really showing emotion and feeling feels. Mm-hmm. So I first noticed it during the scene I just mentioned where Lego's like, you don't look like you have vaginal prolapse. Um, <laughs> I, f- I felt like in that moment you really felt her undercurrent of stress. Yeah. Understandably so. Mm-hmm. Absolutely understandable. Yep. But I feel like with her, it's noteworthy because it's just so rare. Mm-hmm. So do you remember how when the kids came to see Josie for the first time, how I kind of was like, she just had this big fucking smile on her face mm-hmm. and acted like totally normal? Again, and I went to the whole thing of like, I don't expect her to act like the fucking... Like, act, don't falling, act yeah. like crazy stressed and stress mm-hmm. out your kids. But I was like, maybe there's a middle ground. Yeah. But it's like, I think back to then where she was just like smiling big. So this is why this makes this so interesting to watch mm-hmm. because it's such a departure from her normal, always cheery, always positive demeanor. Yep. Um, and then I noticed it again in an interview at the house. It's the same one where she's, you know, the Dairy Queen and pumping blizzards. Um, no, no, don't do that. I love ice cream. <laughs> but it's at a point where she says, we're taking it one day at a time. And, and okay, like, I'm sick, so I have a really hard time even doing her vo- voice right now. I think it would send me into, like, a coughing fit. Probably. But um, she's not doing her normal, like, we're taking it one day at a time. Like, she's, it's not yeah. like that. It's a she bit feels like more, she's talking. It's a bit more normal, and she's just like, we're taking it one day at a time, and it's just a daily process for her. It's not like this, like, slow, like, I'm really trying to. Yep. Did you notice it? I did. It felt weirdly... Because the thing I thought about, because right after that is when they go back to the hospital and they show them like getting in the vehicle. I felt like this episode had two very distinct personalities. There was like the quirky Duggar. There's a bunch of people that are staying in this historic household. And then I feel like it was also, it would switch over to being more a more somber experience because they were dealing with this very premature child and those parts felt more like 
I was going to say traditional, but I guess like early day reality shows at the time. Mm-hmm. Because usually they're doing something for a dramatic effect or, you know, showing somebody's, you know, response to a, a dramatic situation. And when it is something that's serious, it, that's what this felt like. It felt like yeah. early reality TV. So I'm going to read you uh, the full thing of what she said in this interview. She said, we're taking it one day at a time and it's just a daily process for her. And so each day we thank the Lord that she's here with us and we're just grateful to have her. So, and she just kind of ends it at like, so. Mm-hmm. And it really struck me because it's all the same words we'd hear her say. Like the verge, verbiage is like very, very normal and what you'd expect, but it feels so different. Mm-hmm. Like she seems sort of vacant in, in, a, in a different sort of vacant than her normal vacant. Do you know what I'm saying? Like her normal vacant... Like she's vacant emotionally is, exhausted. Yeah. Like the other vacant is like is like void of um sense of self and just like being a robot. Uh, I'm like, parroting the things yeah, that I need like to say. Yeah, it's like just being a like this cheery robot. And now she's more vacant in like a, I'm fucking stressed out on yeah. all, all, all levels. Yep. Like it feels like the first time we're seeing her really struggle to put the mask on. Yeah. That she knows she's expected to wear or is at least used to wearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I think it's just, it's the first time I can think of in the series up to this point where I feel like that happens where it's like, yeah, that cheery, syrupy, sweet voiced facade is not coming so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think back to like Jill's book when she was like the Jilly croissant, you know, yeah. Jilly, sweet Jilly muffin. I said croissant, <laughs> sweet right. Jilly muffin wasn't cut, like wasn't happening. Like, you know, yeah. she couldn't muster it up. Yeah. And I feel like she's tired and she's stressed and like, Hey, maybe things aren't so fucking happy and great all the time for mm-hmm. the first time. Yep. So it's just very interesting. I actually found this to be a very interesting episode in that aspect. Uh-huh. So it's like, we have a, their, their real children bingo square. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is like a Michelle's a real person square if we had one, but we don't because it's so, it doesn't happen. Yeah. During their visit at the hospital, Michelle continues to struggle. She's crying as they have to move Josie and her heart rate and like things would drop. In an interview, she talks about sometimes having to walk away to the nurse's station to cry and then come back, which is sort of nice to see and hear. Um, obviously I don't mean anything Josie is going through or even them having to go through this alongside Mm -hmm. her. I would not wish this upon anyone, but I mean it in the sense that it's nice to see some real genuine emotion out of her because she's really just been a baby making robot up to this point. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I find it almost like incredibly sad too that the first time we are seeing her being like emotional and kind of like maternal, I guess. Is when her child is fighting for their life. Yeah. Because like I've, I've said before, like I, I'm, I'm certain she does love her kids. I, I think that, I don't think it's, there's a matter of like, oh, nope, she just does not love them. Mm-hmm. But she does not give off motherly warmth to me. <laughs> um, She's more of like a delegator to other delegators. Yeah. Like and pumps mm-hmm. out babies. So yeah, this is the first time you're like, oh, we're kind of seeing this, but oh, kind of sad that this is the reason the first time. This is it's why, just It's yeah. a weird mix of emotions and like things to point out and like kind of dissect. It's really odd. Mm. Back at the Cornish house, the kids are sliding down the stairs. It's mostly um, our girl and Dancing King, but a few others join in and it looks fun. Mm-hmm. At one point, Joy did it 
And I was like, Joy's getting down with all the littles. Yep. <laughs> um, and since they've moved in, Jordan has started walking. Mm-hmm. But Tim, there is an even bigger milestone than Jordan walking that we need to discuss. Uh-oh. And that is Jordan's wig tails. <laughs> did you notice the wig tails? I did not. So I am not claiming that it's the first time ever. Definitely possible that they've been in previous episodes and maybe I missed them. Okay. But this is the first time they have caught my eye. So wigtails are a long time snarker sphere thing. Okay. And it's because the Duggars put these headbands on the little girls. Mm-hmm. They're like stretchy headbands that have attached little pigtail hairs that for the top. Maybe I have seen, maybe I did notice this. Hmm. And it's like, it's partially because it's like, oh, oh, God forbid anybody think they're a boy. That's why they put, oh, I don't want to spoil things, but there's things with bows and stuff in the, oh God, like bo- <laughs> girls and bows and like, anyways, but so the wigtails are like a big joke. And I think this is the first time I'm noticing the okay. appearance of the wigtails and it is on baby Jordan. And it's so obvious because like. She's wearing the wigtails in the scene where, like, she's walking back and forth between Ginger and Jessa. Mm-hmm. But, like, the scene right before that, she's crawling around, like, in a onesie, like, in her footy pajamas. Yeah. And she clearly does not have enough hair on her head to make a pigtail. To- <laughs> oh, you know what I mean? No. So then, in the, it's so when it immediately went to the next one, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's fake hair. Like, the, oh, the, the, there's the wigtails. All right. Well, thank you for giving me something else to look for do you feel like you're a part of us like I every do. time you get like, these little parts i feel like, like i'm almost there yeah. you never knew about wigtails and now you do it's like i'm collecting merit badges oh hell yeah <laughs> for the wilderness adventures yes you, know? you do wilderness like along explorers. these ways like i feel like the, for these momentous things like yes this is like a merit badge for you <laughs> so the episode closes out with the family they know bringing them dinner Lego says that the dad, Bill, was an MC for his rally. So I assume back in his state representative days, that's how I take that. Yeah. And then that's the end. I don't really have much to report on that. No. Yeah. I have two things about the episode in general. Okay. One of them was what we just talked about, getting a a view of Michelle being a real person. We talked about this on a pickle where... People that aren't used to being able to express emotions, whenever there's a time that it is, that it is, it's kind of culturally acceptable to have strong emotions. Every everything comes out like a hurricane, and we spoke about it in reference to a situation with my father, where we were shows of emotion came out really strong but not about what the circumstance that we were in. Yeah. Yeah. So it seemed really inappropriate because we were looking at it as like, this is not the time nor place to have this conversation when we are at a funeral. And it's, it just kind of, that's what I looked at this situation with Michelle as she doesn't have to put up as much of the veneer that she's used to. Uh, because, because my child because it's acceptable to not be cheery right now yeah yeah so i think that's where it's it was that's what was going through my head as we went through that part yeah i can see that where it's a little bit easier for her to drop it because she's like well nobody really expects it right now right right right, right. like and even mm-hmm. if i'm not even saying that this is an actual thought she has but it's just mm-hmm. kind of like 
letting go a little bit of the expectations. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, well, this is, it's okay, right? Yeah. I did think it was kind of sweet that as she was up there kind of talking to the camera and pumping and stuff that Jessa was up there with her. Yeah, just keeping her company. Yeah, I thought that was kind of sweet. Yeah. But um, I did, I will say that through the entire time they showed all of the kitchen and all the food, no pickles. Yeah. I looked. Yeah. There was no pickles on that counter. Um, So that was the first thing. And then the last thing to kind of get us out on something a little bit lighter was as they're still taking a tour of the house, um, the camera is looking up. They're going into the ballroom and you hear Michelle talking about how the top floor is this kind of ballroom with the wood floor. And one of the Lost Boys says, welcome to my humble commode. He says commode? It sounded like he said I commode. I this. And it made me chuckle. That's funny. Because that's a toilet for international listeners. A commode is a nickname for a toilet. And usually you say, welcome to my humble abode. abode. That's funny if that's it's like a, if their that's house. what you really said. Maybe we'll go back and listen to it. But I swear I heard him say, welcome to my humble commode. You know what and sucks, it made me though? Laugh. This, this, um, and I'm going to, oh, this gives me an opportunity just to bitch about it in general. <laughs> this whole season four on DVDs, there's no closed captions. No, none at all. And it pisses me off because <laughs> that is really helpful for me in note taking, especially when, exact I'm, quotes. when I'm doing quotes. Mm-hmm. Pain in my fucking ass. And I'm like, well, that would be something where I'd go on captions and be like, oh, does it say it? Yeah. D- no fucking yeah. closed captioning. God damn it. They didn't have any money left over for closed captioning when they had to redo the intro. Yeah. Now they have echo filter they can use. Yeah. I mean. So now all season, I'm going to be really bitter and we know what bitterness. So before you know it, I'm going to need to get rid of my gallbladder. Um, I'm going to be really bitter as I see all the areas where they spent the money instead of closed captioning. Yeah. You're going to look at it and go, well, there, there's, there, there's, where, there's where the money went. <laughs> That's all I got. Yeah. It was, a, it was a good episode for certain things. Obviously, the subject matter was not not what we what you want. But... It was, uh, that house is cool as shit, though. It is. It's very cool. So, all right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In our very first dig of 2024, we will be digging into the story of none other than Hilda Cornish, who is mentioned in today's episode, and her impact on the Arkansas birth control movement. So let's start at the very beginning. Brunhilde Kalert. Brunhilde. She would go by Hilda for short. Mm-hmm. Was born January 24th, 1878. I almost said 19 because I'm just so used to like <laughs> saying. Yeah. Um, 1878. And she was the seventh of eight daughters to oh, wow. German immigrants, Sophie and Rudolf Kalert. Ooh. Good names, man. Good Rudolf. Good names. Sophie and Rudolf had immigrated to the United States in 1861 and settled in St. Louis, Missouri, where they lived in a German neighborhood. Okay. Her father was a carpenter, and they were very much a working class family. 
and at times he went months without work. So she was no stranger to a poor upbringing. Mm -hmm. In her late teens, Hilda moved to a boarding house in New Jersey. Uh, Some sources said New York, but I think she may have lived in Jersey and then worked in New York. Okay. I can't be positive, but she's in that general area. Okay. So there she worked as a textile worker, and other sources specifically said she was a hat maker, but either way, she worked hard for low pay. By 1901, Hilda was 23 and on the move again, this time ending up in Arkansas, where she once again rented a room in a boarding house. That same year, she met Edward Cornish, who she married just a year later in July of 1902. So a little background on Edward. He was born um, October 25th, 1871. So he's got like six-ish and some change years on Hilda. Mm. Um, In Arkansas to parents Eli Arkansas Cornish (laughs) and Sarah Benton Cornish. After high school, Ed attended business college in New York and then came back home to Arkansas where he married a woman named Winona Lambert in 1891. She went by Nona. Okay. But unfortunately, the family suffered terrible tragedy. On September 7th, 1898, their six-year-old daughter, Ruth, died. And I I couldn't find a cause of death for Ruth. It's harder to find things that far back. Yeah, definitely. Um, but it's been said that the shock sent Nona into labor where she delivered a baby girl that they also named Winona. The baby lived only two hours and Nona soon followed, passing just a few hours later herself. Oh my gosh. Leaving Edward to have lost two children and his wife in the span of just 16 hours. Oof. Fucking tragic, right? Yep. And I want to read you part of an article um, about this that appeared appeared in the Arkansas Gazette on September 28th, 1898. Because the wording is just so, like, fucking odd. Like, it's so weird. Mr. Ed Cornish has the sincere sympathy of the entire community in the awful affliction which has been visited upon his happy home. At four o'clock yesterday morning, his devoted wife died, making the third death in the family within 16 hours. In these columns yesterday, the death of little Ruth, the six-year-old daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Cornish, was chronicled. The little girl was the pride of the family, and her taking off was a severe shock to the fond parents. Mrs. Cornish, already in delicate health, was stricken by sorrow. Her newborn babe lived but two hours, and the mother lingered until 4 a.m. when death claimed her too leaving her heartbroken husband and a little two-year-old daughter to bear the grief entailed by the grim reaper's invasion of the household. Can what? We, what the fuck is that? Can we not let the creative writing major uh, write the articles about this guy's family passing away? The grim reaper's invasion of the household. Good God. Yeah. I just read that and I was like, the fuck am I reading? <laughs> And even other stuff was I'm like kind of I'm like okay that's kind of odd but I'm like you know different time where I was like what was the other wording I was looking at that I was like mm, I don't know like, I find it kind of weird for the, even the way they said that she lingered until yeah. four a.m. and I'm like like that sounds like would you die already yeah. like I already thought that was kind of odd but then the Grim Reaper at the end really just just pushed ew. it over the edge 
Somebody had just gotten their degree in creative writing slash journalism, gotten a job at the Arkansas Gazette. Who yeah. fucking knew? So all of that to say, Ed suffered immense tragedy and was a widow before marrying Hilda four years later. Okay. So Ed's surviving daughter, Edith, Edith was like five when they met and six when they married. Okay. They went on to have six children of their own between the years of 1904 and 1917, with Hilda being 39 years old when she gave birth to her last child. But they had plenty of means to support their seven children. Ed was a very successful banker, making a ass load of money. Business. Business. Just to give you an idea, he first co-owned a banking and real estate firm, then later became president of the American Bank before the American Bank merged with the German National Bank in 1911, and Ed was named vice president. Wow. So big positions. So he has a very successful banking career, which made it possible for them to build the Cornish house. Okay. The home was reportedly built for $60,000. So you know I love me an inflation calculator. <laughs> so I put in 1917 because that was the year that they were like building it. Okay. And it came out to $1.4 million today. Um, and then 1919 was the year they moved in. And in the calculator, that lowers it to like one2 but somewhere oh, it's it. in, yeah, it's in somewhere in there. It'd be on Zillow Gone Wild. <laughs> Have you ever seen that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the combination Craftsman and Tudor revival style home is big, bigger than the Tater Top Mansion, actually, because it's eight thousand two hundred square feet, and the Tinker Toy House is seven thousand. So it's wow. got a good twelve hundred square feet on it. The first floor has the parlor. Library, study, breakfast room, kitchen, and dining room. The second floor has five bedrooms and three baths, while the third floor, like we saw today, was the ballroom. Mm -hmm. And just to top it all off, it cost them $15,000 to furnish, which comes to $266,000 today. Okay. So they were Richie's. I was going to say. So that was just a little on the house. Now back to the family. Despite having six kids to take care of, Hilda had, or seven actually, but then the other one was kind of older, so she kind of moved out, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, despite all of these kids, Hilda had always been very involved in the community, mainly because they were rich as fuck, so she could afford, like, household help. So right, she right, could right. go. You know, it's that society type thing where you have the, you can go be a part of the community because you don't have to fucking I'm... take, you have a housekeeper, you have, you know. Yeah. Um, so Hilda had a passion for helping get playgrounds built for children okay um she was also part of like a like a library association she served on the state the board of the state farm for women which is not insurance <laughs> it was a correctional institution oh <laughs> a little um, different a little different just a little bit she was an officer for the arkansas federation of women's clubs which while a little less directly community focused the position gave her many social connections that she would later use and cemented her as an influential figure that people respected. It's a lot of extracurricular activities. She a, yeah, she had a lot going on. Hilda was even appointed by the governor of Arkansas to lead volunteers in aiding victims of a big flood of 1927 that struck Arkansas. Okay. So picking back up on the timeline of Ed's banking career from where we left off previously... 
Then he became president of the American Bank of Commerce for three years before moving on to be the president of the National Cottonseed Products Corporation. Wow, a little bit of a lane change, huh? Finally, he was an executive at the First National Bank and Trust Company of West Palm Beach, Florida. But just as the Great Depression was ramping up, the banks collapsed, as did mm-hmm. many. And sadly, Ed died of suicide in the Roosevelt Hotel in New Orleans on November 5th, 1928. In the notes he left behind for Hilda, he expressed his deep love for her and assured her of her financial security, even instructing her of who she could trust with investments. Hilda was left with $375,000 in a life insurance policy, which my little calculator buddy says is $6.7 million today. Okay. After, um, after her husband's passing, Hilda, now age 50, she just threw herself into community volunteer work more than ever. Mm-hmm. But it was in 1930 when her focus shifted to the birth control cause. And that was because she met the mother of her son, Ed Jr. Um, mm-hmm. She met Ed Jr.'s roommate at Yale, which, side note, in those notes that Ed Sr. left behind... Mm-hmm. After his passing, he'd like ex- very specifically expressed that he wanted money left to each of their children to be able to go to college. Like mm-hmm. that was important to him. Okay. So that's why Ed Junior's at Yale. <laughs> <laughs> so Ed roommate, his Ed's roommate was Stuart Sanger, son okay. of Margaret Sanger. Now I'm not going to go in like too deep on Margaret. Because I don't want to get too far off course, as I want today to really focus on Hilda Cornish and the birth control movement in the state of Arkansas, like, for the most part. Mm -hmm. But just real quick, to give you an idea, Margaret is largely regarded as the pioneer of the birth control movement in the United States. She popularized the term birth control when previously it was mostly referred to as, like, family planning and things of that sort. (laughs) She opened the United States' very first birth control clinic in 1916 but within 10 days it was raided and shut down and all the condoms and diaphragms were confiscated surprise Uh, i want to know no pun intended (laughs) um i want to know what they they probably kept them all they're like i could use these you know what (laughs) um and she was arrested and served 30 days in jail she went on to establish the american birth control league in 1921 which was the precursor to the planned parent federation of america Ooh, interesting. Um, so, Planned Parenthood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what, it, it's all like mm-hmm. the different name changes, but it's Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. And after having been dreaming of a magic pill since 1912, it was in 1950 that Margaret sought out to make this a reality. She was the one to organize and secure funding for the research and development for the oral contraceptive, a.k.a. the pill. Wow. So that is a very, very brief overview of Margaret Sanger. Emphasis on brief. So after meeting Margaret through her son at Yale, Hilda becomes very interested in this topic. And in the summer of 1930, she even travels to New York to visit um, a birth control clinic that Margaret had opened seven years prior and had not been shut down. (laughs) Um, So in 1923, she'd opened it and it was called the Birth Control Clinic Research Bureau. So Hilda leaves this trip inspired and hauls ass back to Arkansas and begins formulating how she could get something similar started there. 
She ends up rounding up 12 like-minded members of the community that she has met through her years of volunteer work. Mm-hmm. All those extracurriculars. Yep. Mm-hmm. She rounds them all up in November of 1930. And I feel like the cast of characters almost sounds like it could be a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Among the attendees were a rabbi, a Presbyterian minister, a lawyer, the chief of staff at Ar- in a at the Arkansas Children's Hospital, none other, funny, and the president of the Arkansas Medical Society. That's just naming a few. Let me guess. They all walk into a bar. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. It's like, instead of like, so a rabbi, you know, instead of like all of them walk into a bar, so a rabbi, a minister, a lawyer, and a doctor walk into lunch at the Cornish house. <laughs> walk into a birth control <laughs> facility. <laughs> so it's at this meeting that the Arkansas Eugenics Association is formed with Hilda as the leader. Their mission was to promote, quote, the eugenic development of the human race under favorable physical, economic, and social conditions. When I hear eugenics, I say yeesh. (laughs) Not... And even just that description sounds... Not sounding good, right? No. Because eugenics was a theory and a practice, quote, aimed to improve humans by either encouraging or discouraging reproduction based on genetic traits. Mm-hmm. So simply put, it's basically trying to purposefully breed out undesirable or unfavorable traits. That's correct. Whatever the fuck, whoever the fuck decides these traits are. Mm-hmm. So big yeesh that it's the Arkansas Eugenics Association. But here is where I want to point out some of my main sources for today's dig. I felt it more appropriate to m- appropriate like mentioning it now rather than at the top. So, first to explain, in my process for writing a dig, there's a kind of like pre-research step, right? It's when I'm kind of scouring to see if there's enough information to even do anything, weeding out things that don't offer much, skimming, saving articles, tabbing books, anything that I think might be beneficial then in the second phase is when i'm really like pouring over things in depth to extract from Mm -hmm. so as i was doing some of the initial pre-research i noticed two names coming up repeatedly and i hope i'm saying this right but marianne leung l-e-u-n-g okay so marianne leung and melanie welch both were authors of countless articles and even ones featured on the arkansas encyclopedia Hmm. both women wrote their dissertations on the subject of the arkansas birth control movement Ooh, interesting so i was able to read melanie welch's dissertation in its entirety all 242 pages that's the research that whitney does for this um hers was titled politics and poverty women's reproductive rights in arkansas 1942 to 1980 um So she wrote this for her doctorate in philosophy from Auburn State University in May of 2009. Damn. And in Melanie's dissertation, Marianne's own dissertation from 1996 titled Better Babies, the Arkansas Birth Control Movement during the 1930s. Um, So that she wrote that for her dissertation for her doctorate from the University of Memphis in 1996. So it was interesting. So when I read Melanie's... 1896. Did I say? You said 19. It is 1996. 1996. Oh, yeah. Okay. She wrote her dissertation in 1996. I was thinking about... Never mind. (laughs) Yeah. So 
So Melanie, a big source for Melanie's dissertation mm. was Marianne's dissertation. Correct. Okay. So I was unable to access Marianne's dissertation in it, like to read in its entirety. But given the fact that it was like a huge resource of Melanie's, along with the fact that I've read countless articles and other works written by Marianne, even her chapter about Hilda Cornish in the book, Arkansas Women, Their Lives and Times. Um, So between these various articles and the book, she cites her own dissertation research as a source. Okay, so you're getting quotes from it. So I feel pretty confident that I've gotten the gist of her research, regardless of being able to read it in its entirety or not. Correct. Sidestep for a second. I think I love reading dissertations now. (laughs) Okay. Like, I want to read more. Uh, I mean, clearly, as long as it's like a subject I'm interested in, I think it would be painful just to read one for the fuck of it. But I think it's fascinating. I really enjoyed the thoroughness of it. Yeah, they're like, heavily researched. It's yeah. so, and I love being able to look down on each page to read the the sourcing and see that it literally says UAMS historical blah 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 file cabinet blah blah mm. blah file folder five document blah blah. I'm like, I love that. <laughs> so it made me really confident in being able to give this information today, being like. Oh, these quotes came from shit that's in a fucking file cabinet down in the basement of UAMS. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, I think that's fucking awesome. Mm -hmm. So I really liked it. And I've paid money and signed up for, um, to be able to read various old newspapers. That is why I subjected you guys to the ham sandwich thing of the, (laughs) um, the, Russian president's grandson. And I was yeah. like, he drank Coke and uh, ate ham because I had paid money and didn't get anything out of it. So it's like, I've, I've done things like that, but that's things that are just a little bit, a little bit more accessible. Yeah. But while researching for this, Tim, it was the very first time I signed up for access to something as an independent researcher. Wow. Do, you got a, you're getting a merit badge for wigtails. Do I get mm-hmm. one for... For being an independent... For being an independent researcher. I think so. If ATI kids with the fucking seventh grade education can be deemed like pre-med and like have a law degree, I should be able to get a merit badge as a fucking independent researcher at the very least. Don't you think? Yep. Miss Independent will be your your theme song now. And then it'll be researcher. Like (laughs) Miss Independent. Really small. Researcher. Um, But it's truly to like it led me down a rabbit hole of various library accesses like i want to try to get <laughs> okay and i found one, and i was like oh man i can try to get harvard and so i got like all excited and i was like what do i need to submit what do i need to do and then i realized that like they they treat it like you know how, like professors have like office hours yeah there's fucking online office hours to even be able to apply to get to their library oh my god and gosh. so i was looking at the days <laughs> and like whatever and i'm like this probably ain't fucking happening and they're gonna be like in what for and i'm like um for me, like you know what I mean. Do I yeah. tell them for my fucking Duggar podcast? You tell them like, independent journalism. Yeah, like I'm like, what the fuck do I tell them? The like, Harvard's <laughs> going to be like, and why do you want to be able to have access? Independent journalism. I talk about the Duggars. You know, like what? Yeah, they're going to yeah, be like. It's going to be vague. Act like you belong there. Well, that's why when I was applying for the other stuff, I was like researcher. Yeah. So say the same thing. Yeah. Doesn't matter if it's Harvard. So I don't know. I. This whole thing, I'm like, I want to read more dissertations. I'm fucking, I, I'm like, I'm into it. Like, I am like, I didn't know I was like an information junkie, but apparently I am. 
Uh, well, no, I am a slut for you details. You are, yeah. Yeah, no, what am I talking about? I'm a slut for details, but I just yeah. didn't know that I was like, I want to read. And you appreciate a dissertation because it's very organized. Oh, I loved and it. And it's hardcore researched in order to prove a point. It was, it was, it was fucking great. And I'm like, what? And I was like, ooh, I liked that. And I was like, what file <laughs> folder did she get that from? Like, you know, it was, it was interesting. So I just want you guys to keep that in mind that as I'm reading some things going forward, I'm like, that was in a fucking file folder <laughs> that she found down in the basement. Any hoozle. Okay. So the reason I bring all this up with Marianne and uh, Melanie is because both these women have studied and researched this topic at length. In fact, Marianne seems like the authority on the history of birth control in Arkansas. Okay. Like, like you kind of look at anything on all these different, like she's it. That's, like all she's different the websites, one that's getting good. She's yeah. it. Mm-hmm. So that of course kind of goes hand in hand with her being well-versed in the life of Hilda Cornish. <laughs> So all this to say that both Marianne and Melanie have come to the opinion that despite the name, the Arkansas Eugenics Association and Hilda Cornish herself were not actually motivated by the theory and practice of eugenics or like the eugenic agenda, if you will, you know, yeah. it was just poorly chosen. They needed a well, better marketing well, team. You're going to, I'll get into that. Um, but really they were motivated by the education and access accessibility of birth control Mm -hmm. to women that rabbi didn't have marketing experience (laughs) so so they came to this conclusion through the dissection of aea okay sometimes i might say the whole thing but if i say aea i mean arkansas eugenics association okay so through aea's public materials like all the things that they put out their internal records Uh, Even the records of correspondence with locals, both with Hilda herself and the association as a whole. And they did not did not find any of their materials to be engaging in discussion of beliefs in biologically inferior races or the promotion of lower birth rates um, for racial minorities or never talking about sterilization. They're like they just. Which are all pinpoints of that eugenics movement that you're referencing. Yes. And so here's the thing. He may, he may, people may have seen recently that Margaret Sanger is like that. That's big, been like controversial over the last few years. Some plant parenthoods have taken her name off things mm-hmm. and like all of that, because there comes into question how much she believed in the eugenics sides of things. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't my focus for today. So I didn't devote tons of time into looking into her but like from what i saw she said some questionable shit she she said i'm like oh yes said that okay Mm -hmm. and she from what i read she seemed to maybe have been on the eugenic side when it came to like disabilities and health type thing Mm -hmm. like she said some like oof things but um i think the the point that these two women are making is that when you dissect all of these things with Margaret Sanger, it's like you, you come across these things and mm. their whole thing with a AEA was that they're like, we didn't find those things. So that's kind of yeah what, how they came to their conclusion. I am not fucking Hilda Cornish. I do not have a direct quote from Hilda Cornish. Right. I'm not the fucking people on AEA. I can't say for a fucking fact that yeah. that was their, their mission, their, their or... mission or not, mm-hmm. but um, 
that was what these two women who have studied it, that's the conclusion they came to because they're like, we just did not find evidence to back up that that's actually what their mission was. Right. And and we'll get into that more. So I just kind of wanted to give that of what their thing is and then you'll kind of hear it unfold as we go. Mm-hmm. So in addition to evaluating the association at length, a close look um, into the personal lives and other works of the members of the association kind of aid in understanding the association's motives as well, which uh, this kind of reminds me, I'm, I'm fucking blanking. I don't remember the name of the book or the author, but do you remember when I did the founding fathers mm-hmm. episode that dig where I highly referenced that one book where the author was like, look, people have come to the conclusions on where they are. The founding fathers were with like religion, like mm-hmm. atheism or not, or like whatever based off of like very specific like quotes and things mm-hmm. and his theory was that like he's like i'm not just looking at that i'm looking into their practices their personal correspondence yeah. their families like he had this whole very specific way of like i'm gonna look at all these things of a whole to try to come to more of a clear conclusion rather than just one thing they said in an interview for yeah. a newspaper in a yeah yeah so it's like i feel like this is kind of like that where they're like it's also like what were they what other things were they involved in? What other yeah. things were they saying? Right. So both women conclude that they used the sort of eugenics rhetoric that was popular at the time merely as a means to make birth control accessible. So mm. kind of speaking the language of society at the time, giving them what they wanted a little bit to get what they wanted out to the masses. It's in, that part that whole part's interesting to me. Um, they thought it would get them support of conservatives who otherwise wouldn't ever support the idea of birth control at all without there being some sort of spin that they aligned with. So Marianne said, quote, rather than officially affiliating with the Sanger led movement, the group selected a name for their organization they felt would draw the widest support and the least controversy. And there does seem to be some evidence to support this. Remember how I said that there was a rabbi that was a founding member of mm-hmm. the AEA? With a lack of marketing experience. But... <laughs> well, Rabbi Ira Eugene Sanders was okay. his name. And Ira was quoted as saying this. It was suggested that because the movement might evoke criticism on the part of the rather orthodox and staid community that we call it the Arkansas Eugenics Association on the grounds that nobody would object to being (laughs) well-born. So it does sound that they were just like, you think people won't uh, chirp too much? All right. Jeez. Weird, but it sounds like... Yeah. (laughs) And I I only point this out because we're talking about Ira and because a lot of times eugenics has a racial aspect to it. There's Mm -hmm. a racial side. There's a like disability side Mm -hmm. there's different aspects of it but like a lot of times there's this racial racial aspect Mm -hmm. ira was very active in the civil rights movement even appearing before the arkansas state legislature in 1954 trying to urge them to comply with the u.s supreme court's 1954 brown versus board of education of topeka ruling Mm -hmm. um so oh and then it was kind of interesting i forget where he moved from but i think he came from somewhere like more rural Mm -hmm. 
and he moved to Little Rock when he was like 32. And that was like the first time he got on a bus and that was the first time he saw the like segregation on the bus. Oh. And he was like, the fuck is this? Like he literally like got oh. on it. He had never seen it before. And he was 32 and he was like, the fuck? Oh, this does exist. Yeah. And yeah. so it felt like that kind of like led him into like a, what is going what on doing? here? doing? Yeah. And it got him really like actively involved. Wow. So I'm not suggesting that any one individual from the association or any one act, quote, cause or whatever the fuck it may be. Mm-hmm automatically means that you can conclude that the AEA wasn't pushing eugenics. I just wanted to give you an idea of these are the types of things taken into consideration when researching the people behind the association. Correct. Where it was like, okay, yeah. what what kind of things were they standing for? Mm-hmm. What were they doing? And even at one point, he was like the, like the head of a school or something like that. And he was like, not head of a school, but he was like on the board of some school. Mm. And there was something about like them not wanting to let in like two black kids and he was like nope it's happening and then they ended up like booting like he got kind of like pushed Mm -hmm. over but he was like standing up for like no this ain't fucking okay can i interject with the little quote yeah and give your give your your voice box a rest please one of my favorite stories that's kind of on the same vein is uh johnny carson so johnny carson um was known at the beginning of his time having his own show to bring on people that were not usually put on TV at that point. And he was bringing on a lot of natives. He was bringing on, um, you know, different singers and artists and different people that wouldn't normally be on late night, even on late night television on broadcast like network. So when he would hit a point where he would take a vacation it was in his contract where he could choose who was going to guest host for him. And just like Betty White. Betty, I was this whole time, mm-hmm. I was like, Betty did it first. <laughs> yep. Just like Betty White did when she had her show, when he would go on vacation, he would always pick the people that would normally ever get that opportunity. So he was picking women and different people of different ethnic groups. That norm that would never get a chance to mm-hmm. host a show on broadcast television, and he'd be like, "Nope, it's in my contract. I pick them. They're doing it." Yep. Yeah, Mr. Rogers was the same. Yep. When he was washing feet with the with the mail with was it the mailman the policeman oh was it police okay mm-hmm. yeah so yep just I just think it's it's that interesting way where it's like somebody entering a period of society where things were kind of the status quo and being like yeah this yeah, ain't no, right i don't think i'm yeah. uh, down with this yeah. yeah i don't think this yep. is okay mm-hmm. so um back to where we were before i got into explaining the resources i <laughs> took a long yeah. time for i'm explaining all the resources and stuff but um in november 1930 the aea was formed like i said mm-hmm. with hilda at the head and they moved things along like pretty quickly okay because by February of 1931, the association opened the Little Rock Birth Control Clinic in the basement of the Baptist Hospital. So the clinic was very, it was the very first of its kind, like at all. Of course. Offering birth control education and services to any married white woman whose family made less than $75 per month, which is about $1,500 per month today. Okay. Uh, later, it was opened up to women of color in 1937. 
So this is a really good indicator of what we're working with. Like what they, <laughs> I mean, what they were working with back yeah. then. People were against birth control, period, at the time. Mm -hmm. So the thought of starting off by offering it to unmarried women was just like out of the fucking question. <laughs> like, Because it's just going to be a big, a big porn movie all over the place exactly. like that's how that feels yeah. where they're like if we give this to unmarried women it's just going to be sex, sex in, the, in streets. the streets oh my god that <laughs> that's hilarious oh, that, that's really yeah. funny but yeah they were many years away from that point so they're like yeah. let's just start with like first things yeah. first like they had to start yeah. small in fact one woman in protest of the clinic even offering birth control to married women said this I am not interested in the advice and supplies you're peddling. Women should not stoop to such practices. Wow. Then don't. Then this isn't you're for you. You're not interested? Move the fuck on. <laughs> don't go to the clinic. She acts like she's like being forced to. You know, you're don't being go forced to, to don't go, go to there, the yeah. clinic that's in the mm -hmm. basement of the hospital. Yep. Yeah, I think, I, I think you'll be fine. Yep. Doesn't apply to you. Move on. Go on. Yeah. What's also interesting is it's almost like the clinic had different pathways for teaching people about birth control, depending on what their hangup was. Okay. For those who maybe didn't have any huge barriers from like a belief system or something, but were just generally like unfamiliar with birth control, mm -hmm. they offered print materials and lectures on the science behind different contraceptives and how they're safe. Okay. For those who feared the number of poor people being on the rise and requiring aid and, uh, you know, information on birth control was presented as an effective solution. For the people that lean towards the eugenics. <laughs> um, for people who were conservative and saw birth control as immoral, the association pivoted yet again. And hosted lectures and had discussions where various religious leaders presented on how birth control could be used in a morally acceptable context. <laughs> so it's like, oh, you hate poor people? Uh, birth control can Come here, take birth control. They can take care of that. Um, you're worried about it because of religion? Go listen to this guy. It it really does feel like they were like, however we can get birth control in the hands of women, we'll do it. We don't yeah. care. Mm -hmm. We can skew our messaging however it needs to be skewed mm -hmm. to get people on board. Yeah. And I just re remembered something. Um, talk about all the religious leaders and how I said it was like a like real cast joke. of carriers. I forgot that the Presbyterian minister on the board, he had like had controversy because in the 20s he was teaching about evolution. So <laughs> she really has this like cast oh, of yeah. characters that are like, prominent people in the community but also like a little little bit like to bend the rules a yeah, little bit they're, yeah they're a little bit of like a rebel yeah and the i think it was the lawyer he used to like whip out diaphragms at parties which was like <laughs> wild back then think about it, it's the fucking oh, 20s and 30s but yeah. he used to whip out diaphragms and be like look at this so it's like <laughs> they just had all these people that were just like were, they they wow. pushed the boundaries a little bit yeah I told Whitney it's like they were trying to get together the reproductive health 
uh, Avengers going on. They were getting the team. They had all the different. They had the bow and arrow guy, and then the the guy with lightning, and then the one with technology. They had all the. They had the rabbi and the Presbyterian that talked about evolution. Yeah, you know, they were a wild group. So because we were just discussing how the association kind of tailored their messaging as needed to whatever your fucking hang up was. Mm-hmm. So on that note, I want to give a little background on what society was like at the time. So the opening of the clinic was two years into the Great Depression. So it goes without saying that many people across the United States were struggling for even their most basic needs. Mm-hmm. And this is definitely part of what propelled this fear of the rise of the poor and more charity cases right. to feed. Poor people were seen as like a threat to society. Mm-hmm. So that was why they were like, oh, you're scared of poor people? Because that was such a thing in society. So it's like, well, Correct. birth control can help. Mm-hmm. Because everybody was like, we can't have more charity cases. Right. Um, and then, so the Great Depression, like I said. And Arkansas specifically was really struggling it was already more rural and poor even before the great depression hit Mm -hmm. in 1929 the average per capita income for the nation was 705 dollars okay but in arkansas their per capita income was 305 damn so less than half of the Mm -hmm. average wow so the state was already struggling then there was that big flood in 1927 that was Mm -hmm. mentioned earlier then the Great Depression hits, and just to top it all off, they had a severe drought from 30 to 31. Fantastic. They're so getting the state- hit by all, by everything. Yes. So this is kind of the state of things as far as the economy goes on a national level mm-hmm. and local. Now let's talk birth control specifically. Birth control was widely considered lewd, immoral, and promoted promiscuity. <laughs> so... You can kind of see why opening the clinic to unmarried women was like a no-go. Of course, <laughs> Like we yeah. talked about. You're like, giving them carte blanche. Yeah. I mean. Sex in the streets, like we said. <laughs> so this, I, this idea or these ideals or beliefs didn't just stem from religious views, but were also fostered because of the law, more specifically the Comstock laws. Okay. A man by the name of Anthony Comstock was of the opinion that the very existence of contraceptives themselves promoted lust and lewdness. And people like him can't, like, you know, they can't just, like, fucking police themselves, you know. Anthony was a very big, like, officer, not on my watch type. Except not an officer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So this fucking nobody of a guy literally just a guy who worked at the fucking post office takes it upon himself to put an end to it all. He drafted up a bill and scooted his ass to Washington to present it. Wow. Just a regular fucking guy was like, I wrote a bill. Wow. What do you fucking know? On March 3rd, 1873, Congress passes it into law. Wow. The Congress... just to... Just to put a little bit of uh, perspective here, um, how many females were in um, our United States Congress at the time? Uh, a, a zero. Okay. So, 
I can confidently say zero. Okay. Without so, looking it up. <laughs> so, man doesn't like this idea that doesn't affect him or he can't even use himself. Well, technically, no. Contraceptives also refers to condoms and things. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's not just because this is before the pill. It's yeah, not just diaphragm. It, it refers to anything, including condoms. But my point still stands. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't affect him in the fact that he's not the one getting fucking pregnant. No. But <laughs> no. But he doesn't like it. He doesn't birthing, like that you're doing not, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the Comstock Act defined contraceptives as obscene and illicit. Wow. Making it a federal offense to distribute birth control or even information about birth control through the mail. Or across state lines. Jeez. And then from there, states pass their own versions of it with varying twists and consequences. Of course. And just to paint the picture for you a bit, one of the worst states was Connecticut, where using birth control at all was against the law. Interesting. So a married couple, in theory, could be arrested and face one year in prison for using contraceptives as a married fucking couple in their own fucking home. Wow. So... People may argue that the enforcement of this was low, but I find that to be entirely beside the fucking point. Mm-hmm. Such law should not exist to begin with. Yep. Not your, none your fucking business. None your business. So as you can imagine, due to these laws, the use of birth control is just not something people talked about, even if they were using it. Mm-hmm. And those who were using it were rich white folk who had access to private doctors who could get it for them. Correct. So this seemed like a good time to mention that it's been suggested that between Hilda's very poor upbringing in an immigrant community, her time spent working as a young woman in the city in like the textiles, Mm -hmm. and her volunteer work in the community, particularly during the flood, like where she really, there's like that's supposedly like when she was like, oh, there are times that like people really need help and like the government needs to step in or other Mm -hmm. people need to step in to assist them. But it says, like, all of these experiences made Hilda in tune with the sort of, like, plight of the middle and lower classes, despite living very comfortably herself since getting married. Mm-hmm. And that her real goal was to help poor women gain access to birth control so they could have some sort of control over their lives. Because otherwise they didn't. Who they, wants that? Ugh. Well, because think about it. They're Ick. in a time where, like... Yeah. Women, we basically, we don't even have full control now. But you yeah. think about like back then, mm-hmm. you got married and you were. It was, everybody there was, was social an, things. Most there people was like, were an IBLP type wife. You did mm-hmm. what your husband said. You had to pump out kids because you couldn't say no. And yeah. you, you just, it wasn't just like a don't have sex. Nope. Your husband demanded it. It happened. Like mm-hmm. these women did not have control of their lives. And she was like, especially poor women. They have no control over their lives. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read you a letter a, a woman wrote Hilda, and it jumps the timeline a bit because the letter's from 1941, but I don't think that matters at all. It, the sentiment is the same and it fits in with what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So the woman wrote, quote, we are terribly poor. We have four children, oldest eight and a half, baby 13 months. I live in terror that I will become pregnant again. I honestly do believe I will die if I give birth again. We do not have enough to eat. 
never have milk. Life is just a dull, drab ache of fear. My husband is now a WPA worker, and he has had no work for a year and a half. He has only drawn one WPA check. Will you please tell me where, if possible, I can buy whatever contraceptives that are safe and how much they cost? My doctor says he does not know. I do not think it fair to all concerned to have more children. So I think this woman is like begging for help. Mm -hmm. She's like, I think I will die. I don't have enough food as it fucking is. My husband's not fucking working. Mm -hmm. Please help. Yeah. And I do feel like people on the opposite side of that argument wouldn't want to hear that letter. Yeah. Because in their head, it's just irresponsible people that are on board with this. Like she just, yeah. This woman doesn't sound irresponsible if she's like, hey, this probably ain't going to be good. Yep. So nobody talked about birth control. There was no education available. Mm -hmm. And if you weren't rich, you were shit out of luck, basically. And Sounds about right. Yeah. So they wanted to change that with the clinic. Mm -hmm. So of the 12 founding members of the AEA, um, half of them are women. So we got that one half that was like the... <laughs> the lawyer, the rabbi, the whatever. The Avengers. Um, and then so the the other half were women. So it was kind of cool that it was split in half. She did men and half and half, men and women. Mm-hmm. And many of the women's adult daughters also volunteered and helped run the clinic. Okay. Including Hilda's firstborn, her daughter Hilda Cornish Coates. Okay. So Hilda, Hilda Coates did an interview in 1989 that I found really interesting. Because it helped paint the picture of the time even more and also of some of the clinic operations. Okay. So Hilda talked about how even though she was college ed- educated, because like I said, her her dad mm-hmm. was like, I want them all. Yeah. So she was college educated, but she too didn't know shit about fuck when it came to sex and birth control when she got married in 1925. Mm-hmm. So here she is a very educated woman for the time. And even she was like, I had no fucking clue. Yeah. She said she douched after sex because that's all she knew. <laughs> that's right, the only right. thing she knew. So, like, squirt some water up in there and hope for the best. But that didn't work, <laughs> of course. And so she gets married right in 1925. And she has three til- children between 1926 and 1930. Okay. So she got knocked up right away after getting mm-hmm. married and very quickly after each birth. So after, you know, the cl- then the clinic opened in 1931. Mm-hmm. So I think I even read somewhere that specifically that like it opened like four months after her last child. So even though it says 1930 and then 1931, they're just like four months apart. Yeah. So after working at the clinic for a while and assisting in the fittings of diaphragms for countless other women, she finally was like, maybe, maybe I should do this myself. Yeah. So she did and she never had another kid. Wow. So it's like, that is what's interesting. It's like, how mm-hmm. many women really did just have a bunch of kids? Because they're like, I didn't know the other there options. A, yeah. Where like, if it was up to them, they're like, I was good at three. Like, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. it's just interesting where, yep. yeah. Um, after, oh, also on that, on that note, just a little tidbit of info because I found it quite amusing and hopefully you will too. Back then, diaphragms were often called womb veils. 
Womb veils. That is up there with shaving the baby door for me. <laughs> Don't you think? Womb veils sounds like my favorite, um, like Finnish all chick metal band. Womb veils. Mm-hmm. And then their logo could be like an artistic diaphragm <laughs> with the veil on it. Yeah, think of it. Think of it. So, if there's any uh, any Scandinavian fans out there that want to start a metal band. We might have a name for you. And why Scandinavian? No, Northern European. There's a lot of good metal that comes oh, out of okay. Northern Europe. So I, 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 was I thought you about, were. I thought you knew something about the diaphragm. I didn't. And I'm like, oh, did it start there? That's why I was. No, like, it okay, wasn't it. diaphragm uh, information heavy. It was mostly metal. Got it. I was yeah. going. I was working on <laughs> diaphragm or womb veil. Sorry. Um. So, kind of on the note of her working as a volunteer at the clinic, there weren't any nurses. So Hilda assisted the doctors and accompanied each woman in the examination room at the time of their physical exam and their diaphragm fitting or their womb veil um, fitting. So in that same 1989 interview, Hilda said, quote, having a woman there in the doctor's office, that was medical ethics. You had to have the nurse there with the doctor. We would hand things to him. We never did fit a diaphragm. The women were probably afraid if they were in there with a the doctor alone. And I know it sounds corny, but like when I read that, I teared up. Yeah. Because I think that like, if you really think of that time period, male dominated, <laughs> everything, male doctors in a world where women have very little power or say over their own lives, a world where the very idea of contraceptives is like fucking shameful and called illicit. Mm-hmm. These women probably were fucking terrified to be there. Like, being seen there. Like, what I think if they're getting fit for a diaphragm, I think he's going to know later. But you don't know. Like, you know, I'm just <laughs> saying that, like, you don't know. Maybe they're, like, mm-hmm. I have no idea. I'm just saying that, like, there's a lot of things to take into cons- consider. I'm like, I'm scared of going to the doctor now. Mm-hmm. So think of these poor women back then. Like, showing up to a birth control clinic in 1931. Mm-hmm. So it just made me sort of like emotional to think back to just like even back in 1931 just like women looking out for women yeah and just offering their support just like simply recognizing that their presence in the room would go a long way for like helping put her at ease you know mm-hmm. i don't know women am i right but in a good way that's that's how am i right on a positive spin we're just we gotta look out for each other yeah i also feel like you saw through a lot of a lot of these like early 1900s where like even the even though the the medical field was dominated by male doctors their understanding of female health was fucking asinine sometimes yeah so it's like not only are you afraid to go into a medical situation that is culturally looked down upon you're also going into a thing where it's like, do you even understand what the fuck's going on down here? Because it sure doesn't seem like it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. So despite the pushback they, they got when they first opened the clinic and, you know, would continue to get, of course, mm-hmm. it's never going to, there's never not going to be noise about it. Yeah. They did garner enough support that over the course of the 1930s, Hilda was able to assist in the opening of several more clinics across the state. Well, 
Hilda also expanded her work for the birth control cause by working with the National Committee on Federal Legislation for Birth Control, which was led by Margaret Sanger. Hmm. So the group's goal was to get legislators and the public kind of like on board to Mm. change laws that obstructed free access to contraceptive information. Luckily, in 1936, there was an amendment to the Comstock Laws. Via a U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals decision, United States versus one package. The decision made it possible for doctors to distribute contraceptives across state lines, and physicians could now legally mail birth control devices and information throughout the country. This is the like it's kind of like the first step in a very gradual process of changing the views of birth control in society. Okay. Like it still fucking took time. Mm-hmm. But having birth control no longer being legally considered obscene kind of helps, <laughs> you know? Weird. Yeah, right? So, fuck you, Anthony Comstock, you fucking yeah. piece of shit. Like, just a little, like, like little, like, little fucking pipsqueak, like, asshole. Like, oh, I'm just going to write a bill and take it to Washington, and then Washington's like, yep. <sighs> like, you'd hear that, and you'd laugh. You're like, oh, just some guy, and then he just shows up, and they're like, but oh, it really yeah, was, yeah. Yep. By 1940, there were some significant changes, though. Hilda worked closely with the Arkansas Medical School, which is now the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, to include birth control methods in their curriculum and then also provide services at the university hospital, the second hospital that Michelle and Josie were at, UAMS. Mm Mm-hmm. So since the hospital now offered those services, the Little Little Rock Birth Control Clinic closed. Mm-hmm. So it was open for nine years. Wow. Another noteworthy change was that the Arkansas Eugenics Association changed its name to, plant, to the Planned Parenthood Association of Arkansas in 1942. So they officially kind of joined. They'd mm-hmm. been like a separate thing, and now it's kind of when they're joining that, that yeah. network, essentially. And getting rid of some problematic verbiage. <laughs> Help. That's good. We're, we're, we're good. Um, and then this is also when the association's focus shifted more to education and referrals rather than the actual running of clinics. Something I just found interesting and wanted to include was, um, okay, so... It was. It's the new way that they sort of adopted in the 40s to sell the idea of birth control yet again. You know, always pivoting. Yeah. You got to change your, change your spin. They'd pretty much use whatever fucking messaging they needed to to get people <laughs> on board. So due to World War II, many women started entering the workforce. Mm-hmm. So now they were like, hey, let's, let's use that as a tactic. Mm-hmm. So there's a 1943 Arkansas Planned Parenthood brochure that this is what it said. Women in industry, child spacing for health, health for the war work, war work to save America for your children. See, now they had some good marketing ideas because they're banking on a global situation on the specifics of what women are going through in the country right now. Way better marketing 
that rabbi must have done some marketing research. Yeah, they did yeah. a little bit. But, but even just the wording of it cracks me up because it's it's like children's spacing for help. Help for war work. War work to save America for your children. Like it's like There was a lot of that in <laughs> so that weird. era though. Yeah. Where it was like slogans that you could say really quickly that were really short or, you know. But this was just their way to spin it where they're just like, "Hey, well women can only be strong enough and healthy enough to work like we need them to if they're not, if they're having, not back, having kids if they're not having back-to-back pregnancy and they got they get into the like oh the body needs time to recover and blah 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 blah. Mm. michelle would know nothing about that but um but that's like that was their whole spin it's like yeah. oh if you really want you know we need them in the workforce right now well they're, they're gonna need to space their kids <laughs> that's the only way Oh my um, Arkansas Planned Parenthood even took steps to reach out to employers directly. One such example is a letter that was sent to the manager of the Ford plant in Jacksonville. So they're even going to other states. They're like, we don't care. Wow. Let's just do this, you know. So they reach out to Ford in Jacksonville, offering information on Arkansas Planned Parenthood's birth control services to their married women employees. Mm-hmm. So they're really just like, oh, we got this big old fucking factory. Even if it's another state, hey, you know, hey, you know, we Why got you resources. Down? We can, uh, we can help you out. We got some stuff. You can well. tell your people. So just interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Really does, um, kind of prove the point of like they really did just like whatever they got to do. <laughs> yeah, it was a hustle. So Hilda spent the next twenty years or so dedicating her work. More to lobbying for the inclusion of contraceptives in the public health system. Something that wouldn't really take off, unfortunately, until after her death. But this was her greatest mission in the last decades of her life. Mm-hmm. So she kind of, like things kind of switched over time. So she was like, okay, now these kind of things kind of kind of exist. Now I'm like, now I want to make it available on a bigger level. Yeah, like, now I was, want to keep going. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She kind of sort of retired in 1951 at least from actively serving as the head of the Arkansas Planned Parenthood um, Association. Okay. She handed the reins over to none other than Rabbi Sanders. Yeah. Now that he has that marketing under his belt, he's, <laughs> he's like, ready I'm, to roll. He's like, I'm ready now. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, we have a better slogan. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's like, I'm, I'm ready now. So to complete the Avengers uh, metaphor here, you know, Tony Stark did the second snap and saved the, saved the world. Somebody else had to take over the group, you know. Yep, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But despite this retirement, I'm saying this in quotes, she still did the lobbying work that I mentioned um, just a bit ago. She was traveling the world into her late 70s for conferences and other events. Wow. So, like, she didn't ever, she never stopped. Right. She never fully let go of trying to assist women in gaining access to contraceptives. Even on a very personal level. One such example is a letter sent from a woman by the name of Sally Ellis Benson, a married woman from Searcy, Arkansas, who wrote to Hilda requesting reliable birth control in February of 1952. Sally specifically requested not to be referred to a physician because, quote, I have already inquired from several, and each just refers me to someone else. So, in her letter back, Hilda referred Sally to Dr. M.C. Hawkins, assuring her that he was supportive and trustworthy. But she kind of predicted that Sally would 
kind of be reluctant to go see him. Of course. Given her disclaimer of like being passed around essentially. Mm -hmm. So Hilda invited Sally to visit Little Rock to see her in person. Sally lived nearly 50 miles away. So again, Hilda just kind of like suspected that that kind of that length of trip might kind of deter her. So Hilda even offered to make the trip to see Sally herself and quote, perhaps talk to a small group on the subject. When two months passed without ever hearing back from Sally, Hilda sent another letter to check up on her again, inviting Sally to visit her in Little Rock and inquiring if Sally ever saw Hawkins as she had suggested. Mm -hmm. She ended the letter with quote, I want you to know that I'm very much interested in helping mothers who need contraceptive advice and would be happy to see you at your convenience. Hilda was 74 years old at the time of that letter. Damn. Unfortunately, by 1955, Arkansas Planned Parenthood was struggling with support, and Rabbi Sanders informed the National Planned Parenthood office that he and the other like local leadership had come to the decision that they had to dissolve the Arkansas group because they were financially unable to carry on the program like in accordance with the federal group's like requirements. Right. Um and then planned parenthood did not exist in Arkansas for the next about 30 years. Wow. Hilda spent the last decade of her life suffering complications from spinal surgery. So she was pretty much homebound, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And then she passed away November 19th, 1965, at the age of 87. And her dear friend, Rabbi Sanders, gave the eulogy at her funeral per her wishes. Damn. So that kind of sums up Hilda's life. When I want to pick back up on Planned Parenthood in Arkansas. So I said it went away for nearly 30 years. Mm-hmm. It was brought back in 1984. And funny little story, they celebrated the one-year anniversary of the reopening of it with a party at the Cornish house as a nod to the woman who helped start it all. Oh, wow. All the while, people marched in protest outside in the streets. <laughs> so it's kind of funny just to think about like seeing the house in the episode and be like, there was a whole march going on and they're inside having a party. You know, yep, there like, was a contraception party inside. Yep. So that brings us to how I wanted to close out this dig by shifting the focus back to what brought us here in the first place. And that, of course, is the Cornish house. Okay. Taking it back in time to where we sort of left off and leaving the home to Hilda after his death in 1928. Hilda hung on to the house for about six years before selling it in 1934, mm -hmm. which is roughly three years into her birth control work. Yeah. What's wild, though, is she sold the house for $10,000, which is about $230,000 in today's money. But if you remember, it cost them $60,000 to build, which was equal to over a over million dollars today. So she sold it at a considerable loss, but it was smack in the fucking middle of the Great Depression. So Yeah, that's um, true. I was going to say, did she sell it to somebody she knew? Or? Yeah, it was right in the middle of the Great Depression. So I guess in some way she's sort of lucky that there was even a buyer at all. 
Yeah, oh, no kidding. And there's no details. I don't know why she's so... I mean, but by then, if he passed when she was 50, so she was like 53, her kids are mm. probably older, she was probably like, oh, I don't need a big hat, you know? Yeah. I'm just assuming at this point, but... You couldn't find the open door post from that time? From from 1934, no, no. Like, not even like the Wayback Machine, you can <laughs> yeah, find right. the old open yeah. door post. Yeah. So, in the 40s, the home became a nursing home called the Julian Home. Hmm. which um, operated until 1973. Okay. After not as catchy as the Cornish house, but... Yeah, not quite. After that, the house was vacant for five years and suffered from, like, vandal, you know, being vandalized and things. Mm. But luckily, the home was purchased by Dr. Hampton Roy in 1978, who completely restored the home. Wow. And I kind of... A man after your own heart. Right. I kind of chuckled to myself, though, as I read the list of things that they did. And they listed one of the major projects as being the complete repair and restoration of the original floors. <laughs> so I'm no like, wonder Grandma good, Exactly. And I'm like, good thing Grandma Mary was looking out with her little buffing rag. You know, <laughs> I was like, thank you, Grandma. She knew those floors uh, were like fucking important. It's the power of pine saw, baby. It's the power of pine saw, baby. Uh, so the Cornish House was officially added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1982. And I'm not entirely sure exactly when the Roys sold the home, but at some point they did. Mm-hmm. And I believe it, it was those buyers who then rented the house to the Duggar litter. Okay. I saw a write-up about the owners throwing a sort of open house type thing for the 100-year mm-hmm. anniversary of the home. And it mentioned how it was a second home for the owners. And that they run it out on Verbo. So I'm inclined <laughs> to believe it's the same people. <laughs> right, right. Um, and yeah, so that kind of sums up the life of the Cornish house and the life of Hilda Cornish. Wow. Pioneer of story. Arkansas birth control movement. Wow. And they... I, I tried to look up the house right now. Uh, it's it's on Verbo, but not currently renting out. You know what I mean? Hmm, so you can't like... Yeah. It would only let me look at four pictures before it kept timing me out to like a, this house isn't available right now type thing. Damn. So. So we couldn't plan a trip to go and stay in the Cornish house. The four pictures that were up though, it's interesting to, it's, it's interesting to see it more furnished. Like. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was real empty when the Duggars were there. Like they have like camping like yeah. tables with like the benches, mm-hmm. like for their dining room. And so it was kind of nice to see it furnished. It was interesting. That's cool. I mean, I'd love to stay there. I'd fucking love it. <laughs> There's a there's a restaurant chain here in town that has the Cornish at the beginning of their name. So I was going to make that joke a couple times, but... You're talking about the Cornish pasties? The Cornish pasty. Yep. Cornish pasty, yep. Not the same. No, not the same. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so... That's less to do about birth control. A little you know, less. Surprisingly less. More about stuffed uh, pastry, but you know. <laughs> that was a good one. Thank you i did a lot of research yes you did you read a whole I, like, dissertation so the only thing that sucks is like you go through it and you're like but you know i have to pull just like the most applicable to tell a very specific story of course. but i i read so much and so much of it is so interesting but i'm just like i can't <laughs> yeah you know yeah. but yeah because it re- led me on all these other different pathways i'm like this is fascinating this is fascinating <laughs> this is fucking fascinating mm-hmm. it's so interesting it's funny so i I was happy to start the year with this one. Good. Yep. Nice. You want to dig on some shit? Let's dig on some stuff. 
Some sister stuff. Some sister stuff. What you digging on, Timothy? All right. I made my decision. So I I work in a new store. I I don't know if we talked about that on here. I don't that know, I, yeah. That I changed stores in this new company that I'm in. Um, I moved, what, end of November? No, before that, right? Beginning of November, I end of October. Somewhere, so I believe it was November that I moved to this new store. And it's in the same brand. And we have the same menu, but different kind of a different team, a different clientele. Very different clientele. <laughs> yeah. Um, farther away from the house, Ugh, like three times as nice, far. Yeah. was nice while it lasted. So the, what I'm digging on is a team walking into a new team that has a good attitude. And I'm not saying the old one had a bad one, but there's always that thing where you got to kind of, as a new leader in a group, you got to win people over. And it's not about appeasing them. Most of the time, it's literally just about listening to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like you anywhere you work, you get stuck in kind of the the day-to-day of doing whatever the job is. And sometimes you don't have the freshest eyes when you look at what do my employees need to do their job? So I came in not wanting to throw my weight around. I came in and I listened and I observed and I talked to the management team that was there already. And then as you know, my time went on, my, my new boss was like, well, now's your time to kind of start making your imprint. Like, and I told him a couple things I'd already done. And he was like, that's perfect. That's exactly what I want. He was like, I think the average age of the team there is actually relatively young. But the chef that's there kind of got rid of a lot of kind of the toxic personalities that were there. So we're just left with a good group of people. And I feel like they were all very receptive. They were all very friendly. They were all very um, open to helping me and giving me information of why certain things were. And I told Whitney the other day, it was super sweet because I don't give people a lot of personal information, especially when I haven't known them for that long. And I made a comment to somebody about my birthday and I was like, Oh, well it's, we were talking about like starting school or it was like something from back in the day where I'm like, well, my birthday is always a little bit hard because it's in between Christmas and new year's. And one of my employees overheard me. And then on the day of my birthday was like, Oh, Oh, this is when I was leaving. And he was like, Oh yeah, it's your birthday, huh? And I was like, yeah, it is. And he was like, well, thank you for working on your birthday. And I'm like, well, I appreciate that. I'm like, it happens. It's tradition now because then we're prepping heavy going into new years. And, you know, so I got there on new years. We, we prepped, we did our thing. We were cleaning and I, we finished with our evening. I went into the office to kind of do my closing work before I left and that employee popped his head in and he was like, chef, can we borrow you for a second? And I was like, yeah, what's up? Like I figured like something had happened or they needed help with equipment or something. And I got out there and they had plated me a dessert and they had piped in caramel happy birthday on it. And they sang him happy birthday. And I asked him, I'm like, you hate being sang too. I'm like, did you get, <laughs> did you get weird? Everybody gets weird when they get sung happy birthday too. But 
it was just super thoughtful for a group that I've known for like less than two months. At you know, yeah, like it was just very thoughtful that this one specific person was like, "Oh, I need to remember that it was Jeff's birthday, and I need to remember that you know what it is, and oh, we should do something because he was here." Like, it was really sweet. That's it's so super sweet. sweet, and it was I. It has been very nice of a transition to make to walk into a team like that. Yeah, they're they're a good crew. And I feel like I feel like I'm the old man now. And having you a really young... are come to think about it. Oh yeah, you are... <laughs> it's even more so now. <laughs> he really is the oldest one, and you're not old, but like you're yeah. the oldest one there. <laughs> yeah, but it's been nice to walk into a place where that's respected, and where where they understand that like I'm just here to make sure that your life is easy and that you do what we need to do as a team and we support each other, trust and cooperation. We make really good food. We take care of the people to our left and our right and we go home at the end of the day. Yep. And it's been nice to have so many younger people be on board with that, be on board, ask for help when they need to. Um, we have two younger people that we actually made shift leads and I, part of my Christmas gifts to them were kind of some leadershipy type things, and they're both like buying in really hard to it, which I appreciate. So I am digging on young crews that are ready to take care of each other and ready to move forward doing cool shit. That's a good one. Yeah, that is a good one. <laughs> Mine's not that good. <laughs> Sometimes yours are deep and then mine's, here's a song I like. <laughs> right. Well, mine is rather specific. So they're, they're you know, oh, go fit. Everybody's shocked, right? Everybody every, ready for this one? Good thing I'm sitting down because this is probably going to be a big one. Videos and things on the internet make me cry. Okay. It's a good thing I was sitting down. Right? Man. Shocking. I know. And there's this whole, this next thing, there's been this sentiment I've seen a couple of times, but the specific video really got me. So, like, some things I've seen in the past, for example, was, like, an old man, like, just a picture of an old man learning to curl his wife's hair because she can't curl her hair anymore. Mm -hmm. And those old ladies, you know, how they have their very specific, they like to set their hair, you know, and everything. Yeah. And, like, I've seen things like that in the past, and I'm always like, oh, my God, that's so sweet. Well, then I came across this video on social media, social media, media, social media, Instagram, where it was an old woman. I don't know if she has Parkinson's or something, but she's shaking a lot and she loves her makeup. And so she can't put on her makeup anymore because her shaking is so severe. Mm -hmm. So it was her husband Mm -hmm. with a lady there showing him how to put her makeup on mm-hmm. and it was like this is how i do my eyeshadow and here's her lipstick and he was she, and like the wife is like not too much and like <laughs> she's sitting there telling like the lady like i don't feel like myself without my makeup on mm-hmm. and she was like yeah and oh my god i'm gonna fucking cry but like so he puts it on and then she's so like she looks at herself in the mirror and she says i'm me again or like something like that but um fucking kills me and then the other part that sticks out to me it's like, you can tell he's like so nervous the entire time. Mm-hmm. And when the lady that's teaching him says you did a really good job, his shoulders drop in relief. And he says, oh, thank you. It was my, <laughs> it's my first time. And she's like, you like, just like, you could see the relief just like washing over him. 
I'm fucking blubbering over here, you guys. So it's like I already watched this and I watched it over and over and I'm like, oh my god, it's so sweet. I can't fuck. Oh my god. Like three days later, Tim sends it to me on Instagram. <laughs> and he was like, I learned to contour for like, for, he's like, if this is us, I learned to contour for you. And then I was like, oh my god, he doesn't know that I was already losing my mind over this video. And I was like, you would too. And I'm like, he would learn that. And I don't know. It just fucking gets me right in the peels <laughs> and i'm fucking losing it and you can hear it right now I'm losing my goddamn mind but it's just so sweet <laughs> but tim and i've also had very specific conversations i would let you do my makeup i would let you do my hair but we have other conversations i'm like hey if i get to this point like maybe i don't want you to take doing this maybe send me somewhere <laughs> you know <Yeah. laughs> so we have our we have we've had these discussions of what yep what we want in our later years and what we don't want. But um, mm-hmm. I just think it like hit me even harder because I was already losing it over it. And then you sent it to me and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I'm digging on. Um, I'm digging on that video and just the idea of like, that was something so important for her that he could learn to do that mm-hmm. would just make her fucking day and yep. make her feel. Like herself. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, God, now my nose is even more stuffy because I'm fucking crying and it's already stuffy. I'm a mess. But you're a cute mess. What's our, I always, I told this joke the other day. It's the Boy Meets World line where something happens and Topanga walks out of the room and then Corey looks at Mr. Feeney and goes, Topanga! And Corey looks at Mr. Feeney and goes, don't hate her, sir. She's She's my problem. problem. (laughs) But don't hate her, sir. We say that all the time to each other. But don't hate her. She's my problem. So whenever she's like, I'm a mess over here, I'll always rub her shoulder and go, but you're a cute mess. Yep. But you're our mess. Yep. Well... Oh, sorry, guys. I ended on a very that was a bl- good one, though. I ended on a very blubbery note, but goddamn that goddamn you should, video. You should repost that. I will. I'll good. do it in stories, like after I do post visuals. Yeah, same day that I do. Fucking gets me, man. <laughs> and the other ones already, where I'm like, that's so sweet, but this was an actual video, not just like yeah. a picture. And seriously, of it's when he the relief that moment really gets me. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> uh, so we'll get that posted up. Feel free to buy us a pickle or a coffee. Buy me coffee.com slash digging up the dug. You can enjoy our Mildred related stuff on Instagram at digging up the Duggers pod. Visuals and, if, and these types of videos that we talked exactly. about getting posted. And, you yep. know. and if you'd like to send us anything traditional snail mail, we do have a P.O. Box 5973, Glendale, Arizona 85312. Just real quick before before we sign off, if there is any people that do want to use Womb Veils as the name of their metal band, just let us know. 